Father, we are here to worship you today, our God and our Creator, but also our Father who makes life possible for us. We thank you, too, for our intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we've sung about this morning. We celebrate the finished work of grace. And so we come this morning as your people. We come pleading nothing but the finished work of Jesus Christ. We plead grace today and we plead grace tomorrow. And Father, we offer attentive hearts today and we, we give ourselves to you in total abandonment. All that we are, we give to all that you are. And we pray that everything we say and do here this morning will bring honor and glory to your name. And Father, we also are a needy people. Standing here just a moment ago, I was thinking how good it is to have a day that we can cease from what we normally do. For I need a course correction this morning. We all need a course correction today. Remind us who we are in Jesus Christ. Remind us why we are here in this life. And may we live this life in total abandonment to you. So, Father, we also come to center ourselves around the preaching of the word. And we pray this morning that you will use the word to change hearts today. Don't simply stir us, but change our hearts. And we yield ourselves to the authority of your word. And we pray your blessings upon the preacher of the hour. We also hurt today. We still hurt as a family. We have been wounded greatly in the last few weeks. And we lift up those who have suffered such great loss. Holy Spirit of God, continue to bring healing in lives and hearts in this family. We lift up those who will undergo the surgeon's knife tomorrow and later in the week. We pray your healing hands upon those bodies. We commit them to you. We pray that you'll use these days to strengthen their lives, not only physically, but strengthen them spiritually. Finally, Father, we give today with glad hearts. Realizing that all that we have comes from you. Everything is yours. We have just been granted the privilege to use these things for a while. And we give with liberal hearts, glad hearts. And we pray that you'll use these monies to continue to advance the kingdom of heaven. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, most of you know our guest minister today. Les Newsom is the campus minister for Reform University Fellowship, Oxford, Mississippi. We've, he was with us last year when Jimmy was away. Uh, maybe you're new here at Grace and never heard Les preach, but you're in for a treat this morning. Before he comes, let me remind you, we still have some of these books left. Uh, we, we want to give these away, so if you have just taken one or two, come back and take a couple more today and give them to friends. The Passion of the Christ, we bought that in hopes of ministering to those who have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Before Les comes to preach, we have another message from Jimmy in Budapest. And on the way over, Joseph saved our lives uh, as we were about to be smushed by a uh, bus. Tonight we're going to be in a meeting a Tuesday night Bible study and so we're in the library right now. Jimmy will be speaking with an interpreter named Joseph. 
And these meetings are kind of, kind of like RUF. Hey guys, we just finished uh, at the university campus and I was asked to speak on the holiness of God. I did, and I think I scared the daylights out of them. Um, I, I, they're, a, they're kind of a calm and quiet people, and you know, I'm not uh, real long on calm and quiet. So, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I've been given the assignment of speaking to you about the holiness of God. Tak pak byste vybrali to, co by vybralo většina, vybrala většina Američanů. Are, are you trying to suggest I'm a little loud? <laughs> But uh, sweet bunch of kids, an exciting, uh, uh, an exciting picture of uh, a room full of probably 55, 65, 75 kids, uh, thinking that these university students are going to make their way into churches across uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, is, is quite an encouraging and, and uh, exciting thought. Uh, it's been a long day. We're, um, we're, uh, we have finished uh, our stay in Prague. Now we're going to spend a couple of three days in, um, in Brno. And uh, tomorrow Brent and I will meet um, uh, with the leaders of this national ministry. Guys, this, um, this mission fit adventure is more than halfway over now. And um, you've had oh, 18 days or so to uh, be reminded of the biblical emphasis of spiritual gifts. I hope you found it interesting. Um, I hope you found it elucidating. I hope it'll help you discover. You've heard Cindy speak a couple of times. You've heard Richard speak once. And again, don't, don't forget that Grace Venture is about helping you discover your spiritual gifts so that you can employ them in kingdom building. That's what we're about. That's what this is about. We're looking for ways that we can direct Gracie Man. Um, to take all those wonderful gifts that are scattered throughout us and use them around the world. So keep reading, keep looking, keep investigating, and hopefully by the time um, um, we're back, you will have a good idea about how God has equipped you. If you brought your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 15. While you're turning, am I correct in understanding that Jimmy has ensured that he would have his face in front of you even when he's on the other side of the world. Is that correct? How Jimmy Young-esque. <laughs> Did you love the picture of the, uh, of the student that he's sitting with over the counter and Jimmy's got this right here going at him? I've been on the other side of that. I pity that young man, whoever he is. It is always a pleasure to be among you. Um, the Ministry of Reformed University Fellowship is your ministry. Uh, we are not a parachurch ministry. We are a ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination to which Jimmy Young and myself are both ordained. And we are here as your arm to the college campus to reach students for Christ, to equip students to serve the Lord in His kingdom. And we are thrilled whenever we can get an opportunity to come be among you in this way and share with you the things that are going on. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to look at something that, I, I, uh, that, that was sort of on my heart in the face of the things that I have heard about that are going on with you in the last month. 
Um, it has been a heavy time, has it not? And so I turn to a passage that I heard R.C. Sproul once say, that if he were on a desert island, the one book that he would ask to be left with on the island would be, of course, the Bible. But if he was only given one book in the Bible among that collection of books, he would ask for the book of Romans. And if he was only given one chapter on the desert island, he would ask for Genesis 15. I wonder why. Perhaps this morning we can find out. But if you will turn your attention with me to the reading of God's holy word in Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the, at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is God's Word. Let's pray before we consider it. Lord Jesus, what would we say this morning to those who find themselves behind a frowning providence? Father, you have dealt with a heavy hand to many of the families in this church, in this body. And we have all felt it. We have attempted to bear one another's burdens, but we have come back to this place in Your Word because we believe Genesis to be a book of foundations. We believe it to be a picture of reality itself. And Lord Jesus, when we come to troubling times, it's as if we begin to look and wonder what it is 
that we can count on in life. We ask that you would, by your spirit, allow the experience of Abraham to be our guide and our teacher this morning. Father, deal with us as you always have, by your spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish that I had some sort of pithy introduction, but there is way too much in this chapter for us to, uh, for us to wait upon. I want to suggest to you that we can organize the great lessons of this most foundational passage in the Bible under three headings. We will look at the promise, we'll look at the response, and then we will look at the seal. And see if at the end of that we can come to some insight to what it means to be the people of God in a time of suffering. First of all, I want you to notice the promise that God gives to Abraham. Theologians uh, rightly say that God basically makes two fundamental promises to Abram. And he comes and says that on the one hand, I'm going to create out of you a people. And on the other hand, I'm going to give you a realm, a place in which to function. Abram is to be the father of a great nation of people. And they will inhabit a land from which, out of which, the entire earth would eventually be blessed. I believe that both of those promises are wonderfully fulfilled in our time. We being, as it says, Paul says in Romans 9, uh, the true children of Abraham. That God was intending to raise up, first of all, a people that would be known as the church. What you do here this morning is in direct fulfillment to what is stated here in Genesis chapter 15. We gather together as the people of God. But the realm that we have been given is not a physical plot of land on the other side of the world in the Middle East right now. The realm that we have been given is the one stated by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the entire kingdom of God. Which is, as far as the curse is found, the kingdom of God, the church living out its life in the kingdom. Church and kingdom stand in our day as the direct fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15. What a promise. But why is the promise so difficult for Abram? I'm always puzzled with why it is God has to come and open up what he says in verse 1 with, Do not be afraid. What is there to be afraid of? Simply stated, I think we can say this, that when God calls Abram, when he continually comes to meet with Abram, they are hard things to take. God comes, I believe, in four intense revelations to Abram's life that went something like this. In Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abram, get out of Ur. Abram says, where, God? He says, wait, I'll tell you later. In Genesis 15, God says, Abram, I'm going to give you a land. Abram says, when? He says, wait, I'll tell you later. In Genesis 17, God says, Abram, I'll give you a child. And Abram says, how? God says, wait. I'll tell you later. And finally, in Genesis chapter 22, God looks at Abram and says, Abram, kill your child. And Abram says, why? And God says, wait, I'll tell you later. What is it about this God who, when he comes and makes promises, that they come with a sense of difficulty? God tells Abram not to be afraid because, quite frankly, there's a lot to be afraid of. And God continually comes, though, with his providence and pushes Abram out of almost every imaginable comfort zone he could have other than uh, other than him. 
in order to teach him how to really trust him. Abram, do not be afraid. I am your only trust. I am your shield, your reward. My friends, unless you get this point, you haven't started with Christianity yet. Can I say that as explicitly as I can? Until you come to this point that you've missed Christianity altogether and you may not even be in possession of it. Every Christian has to hear this kind of call. Every Christian. My friends, if you have any intention of discovering God, he is going to call you out of wherever it is that you found safety other than him. That's simple. For some of it has to be through traumatic life circumstances. For others, it's simply a struggle of the heart. But there is no Christian who does not come away with a vivid sense of having been faced with the call of God on his life and having to leave things behind. You could imagine a bird, a mother bird who has found her little chicks there, raised her little chicks in the safety of the nest of a tree. All of a sudden, one day, a lumberjack comes by. And begins to hack away at the bottom of the tree. The bird thinks to herself, what's going on here? Why in the world would this capricious, cruel lumberjack want to rob me of my home? So she flits off with the rest of her family to the next tree where she builds another nest and builds the rest of her safety. Only to find even then the lumberjack returns and begins to hack away at the bottom of the tree. So she moves to tree, to tree, to tree. And everywhere she goes, the lumberjack is there cutting down trees. Until such a time as she makes her home in the rock. And when she finds herself on firm footing, on a solid foundation, the lumberjack finally says, this is what I was trying to tell you. The lumberjack, as it were, of providence is coming to each and every Christian and saying... Every tree is coming down. Any other place that you rest your absolute hope upon other than me and my goodness to you is going to fail you. It's all coming down. Is it cruel for this God to teach us that? Of course it's not. Some of you have heard this call. I remember a number of uh, years ago, it's about three years ago, going to the doctor, Mickey, And I went to the doctor and I had a fever that wouldn't go away for about three weeks. Unbeknownst to my uh, wife, I didn't tell her. Certainly didn't tell my mom. You don't tell your mom about things like this. The doctor looked at me and said, he began feeling around my neck and around here and sort of poking around. What are you looking for, doctor? He said, well, you've got all the symptoms of certain forms of tumor fever that are associated with lymphoma. That's quite a day, isn't it, Mickey? Some of you have heard that word cancer. What, what does it do? It's the call. It's the call that says the tree is coming down. There are phone calls that I've had to make to parents that said your child was killed in an auto accident by a drunk driver. Happened to us this time last year, as a matter of fact. It's the call. It's God saying every tree is coming down. It even happens on a smaller basis, doesn't it, young people? When you've been broken up with by the boyfriend or the girlfriend, and we stand lonely 
and hoping. When the phone call comes, and it's the terrifying phone call. My friends, it's more than just difficult providences. It's the lumberjack saying, there is no safety in your family. There is no safety in your health. There is no safety in your job. You either make your home in the rock, because one day a trap door is going to open up in the universe, and either you are going to fall into the arms of God, or you are going to fall into infant emptiness. It's not cruel for God to show us that. So we have, first of all, a call. But notice, secondly, the response from Abram. Verse 6, of course, as you know, is a very big verse in the Bible. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul uses this, I don't think it's an exaggeration, as the foundation of all of his discussion throughout his letters over and over again. But I like what R.C. Sproul noticed about this passage years ago. He says, notice that the verse says that Abram believed God. It does not say that Abram believed in God. He goes on to say that believing in God gets you up to the level of a demon. Congratulations. Demons believe in God. Abram is talking about something entirely different here. I want to suggest to you that believing God means to trust His promises, to build your life on what He has said, on what He says is true, and not what appearances might say is true. We come here to the very definition, the heartbeat of the Scriptures, and its understanding of faith. Now, there's a religious word for you, right? The idea of faith. Who doesn't know, walking along the streets in the South, that faith is part of what you need before God? Everyone needs to have faith in God, right? We throw that word around all the time. But I want to suggest to you that faith is that mechanism inside of you from which, with which, you draw that significance in life. What is the thing that you are connected to, faith asks? Faith in that sense is like an intravenous needle through which we draw life-giving resource. Faith is difficult, is it not? Because most of the time, our temptation is to focus on the quality of our faith. We're worried about the fact that we're not believing well enough. It's interesting that our passage is a little bit of an encouragement to you this morning, isn't it? Yes, Abram believes God. But two or three verses later, he looks and says, yeah, 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 but how can I really know? (laughs) Reminds you of the, the disciple coming up to Jesus saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. My friends, faith is never something to be focused upon. Rather, we are supposed to see what the object of faith is. Tim Keller, pastor in Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, says that faith in that way is like a windshield. It's meant to be looked through, not looked at. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on this passage, says this. Faith is holding on to the faithfulness of God. Faith doesn't look at itself. Faith is never interested in itself, and it never talks about itself. That, to me, is a very good test. I always distrust people who talk about their faith. (laughs) That's the characteristic of the cults. They always direct attention to themselves. You have to be thinking positively. But true biblical faith, he says, looks at God, holds on to his faithfulness. Now, friends, you have to understand... That the Bible is framing your number one problem in life as a problem of not believing. 
You could probably make a very long list of the things that are wrong with you today. The things that you struggle with. At the root of it all is not believing God. Think about it. Why are you so worried all the time? It's because you don't trust God's wisdom for your life. Why is it that you are angry and bitter at the world? It's because you don't trust God's justice to make all things right. Why is it that some of you hate yourselves? It's because you don't trust His love and His grace. In fact, why is it that you disobey? Is not disobedience nothing more than than saying, I'm going to get something better by disobeying than what I would get in the presence of God by obeying? I believe that I'll do better whenever I take life on my own. Folks, faith is the response of Abram. And so the question that's asked us when we come to these great calls of God is upon what have you built your life? In one sense, I've said it this way. Everyone has faith. Even the most irreligious person in the world is building their life upon something. It's not a question of having to have faith. It's a question of what is your faith built upon? Circumstances? The world? Your health? Your family? Abram believed God. And then thirdly and finally, God seals the occasion. We have a promise. We have a response of faith. And then we have this wonderful, marvelous seal. Why? Because Abram is so much like us. God, how can I know? I know you've made your promises, but how can I know? There's always two problems in believing God, aren't there? Number one, we can look and say, Lord, how is it that I can know about you? How can I trust your promise? How can I know that you really have something good for me? But then the other part of it is, I may be convinced of you, Lord, but you are not my problem. It's me that's my problem. I don't trust me. That's the real problem. What if you get tired of me? If I trust God all the way to the bottom, will he be there to catch me? How many times before God gives up on me? Isn't that the second question? And God's answer, I want to suggest to you, is one of the most dramatic moments in the entire scripture. And it seems strange, doesn't it? I, I want to suggest to you that, that Abram knew exactly what was going on. You see, in our day, when we sort of form a bond or a connection between us, we sign a contract. You sign That's how we make contracts. I did a wedding yesterday down in Oxford. A couple of students got married. And, of course, at the very end, there's a a license that has to be signed, has to be verified. At the wedding, you know, each partner sort of comes and makes these promises to one another. I promise to do this. Sickness and in health, blah, 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 blah. But then we look and we say, how do I know you're going to do this? You sign. That's what we do in our culture. But Abram lived in an oral culture. Not an oral culture, but an oral. One that was motivated by sound or by sight. So that whenever they would make a contract, they would make one by acting out the consequence of unfaithfulness to the, to the um, covenant. In front of everyone. They put on, as it were, a little play. In Jeremiah 34, 18, God talks about this passing between the pieces of the sacrifice. In those days, you didn't take an oath by signing, but you took an animal and you killed it by literally splitting the thing in half. 
And then you set them beside each other and walked through the center of it as if to say, may this bloody mess happen to me if I don't fulfill what I promise in this oath that I'm taking. And therefore, when you did it, you enacted it, you were bound, you were connected by it. What you have going on in Genesis 15 is a covenant ratification ceremony. And one of the most dramatic of its kind. Because as he sits there and the sun is setting, there's a thick and dreadful darkness that comes over Abram. It's a darkness of mind and of heart. And in the midst of that darkness, God comes to speak dark things about his family, about their future struggles, and about the slavery they'll encounter. But about the ultimate freedom that he's coming to bring them. But all of a sudden, in verse 17, the drama gets intense because it says that there before Abram in this vision, a smoking pot and a blazing torch comes down in his vision. The two words are the exact same words that are used to describe what appeared to the children of Israel on top of Mount Sinai when Moses was there receiving the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law of God. My friends, what appeared before Abram at this moment was the raw unfiltered Shekinah glory of God. And it shook him. But I want to suggest to you that that's not what ultimately shook Abram. The presence of God was enough, you might think. But the, dr- the drama of it all was what happened after that. That while he's looking down at the sacrifice and all the blood and all the mess and all the animals, all of a sudden the vision of glory comes and passes itself Through the pieces. It passed through the pieces. And Abraham walked away never the same and became the father of the faithful. Why? Folks, because God is coming to say to Abraham in the most dramatic and visual of ways. That Abraham, I have come to bless you. And bring salvation to the world through you. And if I don't. Let this happen to me. R.C. Sproul says, let my immutability experience mutation. May my immortality suffer mortality. May my infinitude suffer finitude. May my power suffer powerlessness. May the impossible become possible. God looks and says to Abram, may I be ripped to pieces if I don't do this for you. My friends, what we have here is the drama of God saying, Abram, how do you know? How do you know? Oh, Abram, think about it. How is it that you know anything that you know? How is it that you know anything true? You can't know anything for sure, Abram, without trusting something in order to know it. Think about it. How do you, if, if you know something, it means you trust your mind or you trust your eyes or your logic, your rationality. Perhaps you trust your friend's opinions. Popular opinion, the experts, the polls. But there's no way of knowing anything without trusting something else in order to know it. We are all building our lives upon some authority, Abram. So my question to you is, look at all of the other things that you could trust, Abram. Look at the other authorities that you could possibly swear by. I'm so much more reliable than them. I'm so much more faithful. Abram, what alternative have you got? Even your life is not in your hands. It's in my hands. Abram, either I am your foundation 
in which case everything is secure. And no matter how crazy your circumstances get, you can still trust me. Or I'm not your foundation. In which case, everything is insecure, no matter how orderly your circumstances. God says, either I am in charge of the universe, and you trust me, and everything will be all right in the end. Or I am not in charge of the universe. In which case, nothing can be trusted, and everything's a crapshoot. Come to me, Abram. Trust in me. What's your alternative? I was on the phone after that wretched doctor's report where we were going to wait and see for a week what it was. Hmm. And I called my friend in Birmingham. And I said, Steve, I just got a bad report. He cried with me and prayed with me over the phone. But at the very end, he said, you know, Les, it really does kind of shake you, doesn't it? Don't you get to those circumstances in life where you think to yourself, you know what? Either the kingdom of God is real and I'm going to be okay, or none of it's real and none of it's true and it's all foolishness anyway. And you stand at a face and you stand with a choice. But my friends, the greatest encouragement to us in those times is to notice that God walks through the pieces alone. That's totally bizarre in this covenant-making ceremony. Whenever a king would enter into a covenant relationship with a vassal or a servant, both, either both the servant and the king would go through the pieces, or just the servant would go through. But when the king goes through by himself, what in the world could that mean? What in the world could it mean except for the fact that the Christian gospel is not that God helps those who help themselves? Christian God, the Christian gospel is not a partnership, some sort of uh, cooperation between you and God. Jesus did the saving, now you have to do the believing. And somewhere between the two it meets. That is not the promise to Abram. Thank God it's not. God looks at him and says, Abram, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant. I'm not just promising that if I fail to fulfill my part of the covenant, that I'll bless you. And that I'll cover it. But I also promise to you that even if you fail the covenant, I'll take care of that. I will bless you, Abram, even if it means I have to die. Sound familiar? Don't you see, friends, that centuries later, another darkness came down. And Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says that at the sixth hour... Darkness came over the whole land, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Feels like that, doesn't it? I'm forsaken. God has left me. Look look, look what he let happen to my family. Look, Look what he let happen to my health. And there sits Jesus. In Isaiah 58, something Abram didn't even know, it says that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of his people. His immortality did suffer mortality. The impossible did become possible because Jesus was cut off. You see the beauty of it? You worry and you say to yourself, it's not God I'm worried about, it's me that I'm worried about. And it's almost as if God is saying, of course you are. 
And I've taken care of that too. How can we apply this? I think there's two ways. The first one is incidental and more explicit. The second one is a little more implicit. Folks, the first application is this. Do you ever feel a little bit inside of you, a little, a little gypped when you read the Bible? And you think to yourself, you know, the people in the Bible had it so much better than me because they got to see. Well, I'm sure. Why won't God give me a vision? I, I, I want to see the dream and the, the smoking pot and the flaming uh, thing. Oh, yeah, okay, bring that on. If I could see that, then I'd believe too. Right? Would you really? Luke 16 seems to cast some question on that. But I want to suggest to you that God has not left us without a witness. Without a witness of what Abram saw. And there's two ways. The first way is this. I think that's what we take the Lord's Supper for. When we come together as the body of Christ, and Jesus says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. But there's something more than just memory that's going on there. When we come together and we take these incredibly simple little elements, we make a proclamation about what? The body and the bleeding of Jesus. Why in the world would we do that? The early Christians were thrown in jail for being cannibals because it was said that they ate the the flesh of Christ and drank his blood. But my friends, they were coming to see in a visible, tangible, touchable sense just what Abram saw. That God said, here as you celebrate this meal before me and with those around you, we celebrate before God that he has kept us. He has died for my transgression and for my lack of promises. But secondly, we not only see it through the Lord's Supper. And this is the reason why I wanted to preach this sermon. I know I've mentioned these texts before, even when I've been here. But I wanted to come to it again because I think there's a second way in which we see it. My friends, the smoking pot and the blazing torch show up among us again in the suffering of God's people. I think that is one of, at least if the New Testament is at all true, one of the most vivid examples and one of the most vivid explanations of how God is present with His people. It is through their suffering. In every broken Christian, we see something of what Abram saw. How? Colossians 1 verse 24, the Apostle Paul says this, Now I rejoice in what was suffered For you, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Another place he would say he carries around in him the very dying of Jesus. Why? If following Jesus is so great, then why do his people suffer so much? And you're a liar if you haven't asked that question. Why do we suffer like we do? May I say it as gently as I can. You are our smoking furnace and our blazing torch for all of us. I know you didn't want that. I know you'd rather trade it for anything right now. But when God brings His people through those fires, 
through those pain. And we as a body weep and do everything that is appropriate. That we doubt and we struggle and we get on our knees and do everything that the psalmist did. It's all appropriate. But in the end, the purpose is for the uplifting of the rest of the body. Friends, the reason the American church is so flimsy and divided and ridiculous as it is, is because we have it so easy. Why are people so invigorated when they go overseas? Right? They see people through real suffering. And they see the bond that was created from that. That's not an accident. There's a direct connection between people seeing and the development of their faith and in the people of God suffering. You say, what's the connection? Why suffering, right? Why does that happen? My friends, it's to show the world that we have not built our nest in a tree. But when those who suffer look and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And though it kills me to even utter it, blessed be the name of the Lord. When the world sees that, our faith is built. My friends, I have no explanation for you as to why God is allowing the suffering that he is in this particular body. You've been dealt some difficult things. But I can tell you this, no matter what it means, it doesn't mean that it's punishment. No Christian is ever punished by a suffering, ever, because of what the sacrifice and the the vision that Abram saw as well meant. My friend, suffering is surgery for the body of Christ. It's surgery for all of us to, to distill down and to make us a corporate body of people who say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't know how to have that kind of faith. And we think that's right. So we need Your Holy Spirit to come and be among us and to produce the faith that we know that we don't have. That we would produce a leaning upon You, a trusting in You, a desire for You. Lord God, we're asking for you to do a work among us. It is entirely possible, Lord, it would even, dare I say, be likely that there are those in this room who are looking at their lives and realizing that they've never trusted you in that way. And perhaps there's a dark fear inside them right now that they may be outside of you after all. Lord Jesus, would you be especially close to that person? Draw them unto yourself. Make them a Christian this morning with a a resolve having seen the way this body responds to suffering and struggle, that they might say with a resolve that I will put my trust in God and God alone and I will bless His name no matter what He deals to us. Lord Jesus, make us faithful by Your Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.